I love uh, all the the uh, feelings and the nostalgia that goes with the Christmas season, the joy and the hope of the Christmas season. I'm also aware that uh, for some of us, those feelings aren't necessarily there. There's more stress than joy. There's there's more anxiety than nostalgia maybe in our lives. There's varying degrees of grief as we grieve those we have lost, as we grieve years gone by or those moments that are no longer with us. And so there can be a varying degree of emotions that go with this season. And even, even as that's true within our own lives, that's true at the very first Christmas. We never really take that into account. As we look at the Christmas story, we think of good news and great joy, and that's certainly part of it. The first Christmas is incredible. The first Christmas is also incredibly terrifying, and we're going to look at that a little bit today. As, as we read the Christmas story, it starts out with these angels that show up to Mary and Joseph, that show up to these shepherds in the field, right? And they make these great announcements. I bring you good news of great joy, which is awesome. But they start the announcement with, do not be afraid. The first thing that comes out of these angels' mouths to the humans who are listening is, fear not, do not be afraid. Now, why does the angel need to open his greeting in such a way? It's because an angel is talking to you. You would be terrified as well. Whether it was in a dream or whether you were out in the field or whether you were driving down the road, if all of a sudden an angel is in front of you and speaking to you, you would be terrified. So the first thing the angels say is, fear not, do not be afraid. We read last week about King Herod. He is disturbed, the Bible says, as he hears about this newborn king. Not only him, but all of Jerusalem is disturbed as their leader is disturbed. The Bible says that there is great weeping in Bethlehem. Christmas was scary. It was terrifying, fearful. Mary and Joseph are warned in a dream after Jesus is born that they need to leave Bethlehem and go to Egypt. Now imagine this, you've been on this huge emotional journey. Remember, they traveled to Bethlehem, right? To pay taxes and to register for the census. As, as Mary is full-term pregnant, they get there. She has the baby, the son of God. And now the angel shows up again. Instead of going back home, which would be really nice to get settled in, let mama do all that nesting that she needs to do. She doesn't get to do that. Instead, the angel says, you need to go to a foreign country and run for your lives. They're going to Egypt because now Herod is going to exterminate all the baby boys under the age of two. Can you imagine the agony the fear that every parent was living with. And as Mary and Joseph take their newborn son, they begin to flee to Egypt. Egypt is where their ancestors were enslaved 
for hundreds of years. And now that is where they are going to try to find some safety. I can only imagine that on the journey and even over the next couple of years as they lived there, they were looking over their shoulders the whole time, wondering, are we safe? Are we about to be caught? The first Christmas is more problematic than it might have been peaceful, might have been more chaotic than it was calm. It was certainly shadowed with grief and sorrow. Merry Christmas. We don't have that on our Christmas cards, right? That's not the image that we depict to everybody when we say Merry Christmas. So I say all that to say this year, if you're facing uncertain circumstances, if there's chaos and drama and trauma within your life, know that those are the same circumstances in one way or another that Jesus came into this world and faced himself. Maybe this year for you, Merry Christmas may be the words that come out of your mouth, but inside there's not a lot of feeling of merry and bright and fa-la-la-la-la. You may be wrestling with family tensions, with grief, with health, financial stress, Maybe you even struggle with your own faith. Thing, I, I don't know if I believe this anymore. I don't know if all these pieces fit together for me. It was into this chaos and strife and grief that the very Son of God makes his entrance. The hope of the world enters into our disturbing circumstances. When Jesus comes, he faces his own set of disturbing circumstances. We've been looking at the prophet Micah who writes this prophecy of the coming Messiah. And as Micah writes it, he's also writing in his own set of disturbing circumstances. He writes to the Israelites, these people of God who have been living in captivity. Not just that somebody else is making the rules, they have been uprooted from their homeland and moved to another country where they have been oppressed and enslaved and put in captivity under one oppression to another oppression. There are many who have abandoned their hope and faith in God. And in doing so, they turned to false gods and they had given up hope. We can look at the Bible and think, you know, it's a shame they did that, but how easy would it be for all of us to do the same thing? If we're uprooted from our family, up from our homeland, everything that we have known and put in oppression. And if this goes on for generation after generation, I think we could be in the same shoes that many of them were in where they move away from God. And a lot of times what happens when people move away from God, they turn away from righteousness, they turn away from justice. And when we turn away, we turn inward. We see as the prophet Micah writes, that people are betraying each other, that the priests are stealing from the people, the prophets are being paid to lie to people, 
Judges are being bribed. There was a lack of righteousness and evident corruption all around them. It's into this chaos and this situation that Micah writes his prophecy of hope. His prophecy of hope is pointing these people who are living in these circumstances to a savior that will one day come. Here's the main verse that we've been looking at the last couple of weeks, Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Micah predicts, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, very specifically where Jesus will be born, where the Savior will rise from. He's also telling us not just where he's from physically, but where he's from as a being. He's not just from Bethlehem. He is from days of old. In other words, he's saying he has always been. The very God of eternity, the Messiah and Savior of eternity, is going to step into our reality, which sounds like great news. But Micah offers some sobering additions as well, that this isn't going to be immediate. It's going to happen someday. In the next verse, verse 3, he says, Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. Jesus comes 700 years later after Micah writes his prophecy. 700 years is a long time to hold on to a promise, right? That promise is going to outlive all of them. It had to be passed on from generation to generation, which would be hard to do. I mean, imagine you're in an emergency and you call 911 and the operator says, Don't worry. Help is on the way. Estimated wait time, 700 years. (laughs) It would be hard to have hope in the middle of that situation, but it brings hope to the people of Israel, knowing that one day God will send a Messiah. He goes on in verse 4. Here's how he describes the coming Messiah. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth and he will be our peace. Micah is telling them, relief is coming. A Messiah is coming, a savior who will bring security and peace is coming, even if it is in the distant future. This brings them some peace. I love how he describes the coming Messiah here in these verses, this hope for the future that is giving them hope in their present as well. Micah describes him in verse 2 as being a ruler, in verse 4 as being a shepherd. 
And we can imagine those descriptions with Jesus from our perspective, but you have to understand from their perspective, these were two very different roles, very different functions and very different status. A ruler is one who gives directives, who leads from the front. A ruler would have been someone who was elite. On the other hand, a shepherd is one who is distant out watching the flock, who would have been seen as the lowest on the social, social totem pole, who lived in the mess, was seen as unclean, but yet cared for the flock. You had the elite and you had the lowly. And it says the coming Messiah is both a ruler and a shepherd. A ruler would have led with a scepter, a symbol of power, a similar tool, but used with very different position. A shepherd would lead with a staff, guiding his flock. Micah is saying that the one who is to come is both a ruler and a shepherd. He's saying this Messiah will lead and will rule, but not with force, with tenderness and care and mercy, like a shepherd. This Messiah, Jesus, that he's describing, he's describing a very unique leader, a ruler and a shepherd that will then willingly be led as a lamb to be sacrificed for our sin. Jesus leads with mercy and perfect love. He drives out darkness with light. He overcomes death with life. He overcomes selfishness with his selflessness and sacrifice. You see the spectrum there? He is a ruler and a shepherd. He is merciful yet mighty and strong. Another description that I love in these verses here is it says that he will stand and shepherd. It says in verse 4 that he will stand, and this speaks of God's active authority and power. When we read about Jesus ascending into heaven, it says that he is seated at the right hand of God. But when he is here with us, he is the ruler who stands. He is actively involved. It says that they will live securely. This would have meant a lot to them to think of peace and rest. It was a hard concept probably for them to even wrap their minds around after all the oppression and exile that they had lived through. And there is hundreds of years more of that to come. Micah is telling these people that the coming Messiah, he is a shepherd and a ruler who will stand on your behalf. That one is coming who will stand with the scepter and with the staff on your behalf. He stands so that we can be at peace. In other words, so that we can sit. So that we can rest. Jesus is the one who came and stood on our behalf. I don't know about you, but there's some seasons in life where it has felt like to me, it's just one challenge after 
another. And I can't go feeling too sorry for myself because all I have to do is look around and see a dozen people who have had it much harder than I have. But generally speaking, you know, in life, how you feel like, just for example, you financially get ahead and then your car breaks down. And it's just one hit after another, after another that seems to come in our life. In those situations, we find ourselves easily trying to cope, to self-medicate, going from one bad habit to another or bad relationship to another. Sometimes we wonder, is there ever going to be relief? Is there ever going to be peace for this? That's just a small taste of what the people of Israel felt as Micah points them to a Messiah that is their answer. There is relief coming, one who stands on your behalf so that you can sit. One who takes the agony so that you can have peace. One who fights so that you can rest. When Jesus goes to the cross, it is the ultimate form of him standing so that you can have peace. He is a shepherd and he is a ruler who gives his life and conquers death at the same time. He is the ruler of both life and death. Different times we feel fear and anxiety and stress. All those things are normal and they're okay. But in this hope that we see in Jesus, it reminds us we don't have to live in that place. We don't have to stay there. That doesn't have to define our lives because we have a ruler and a shepherd who has come to stand on our behalf. Not only when Jesus died on the cross, but when he is raised back to life, he makes it official. When he ascends into heaven, Mark 16, 19 What happens after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. He's been standing and now he sits. And that is because Jesus finished the work that he was standing for, that he was working for, that the Savior came to pay the price for. When he is in eternity in heaven, he sits because as he told us on the cross, it is finished. He sat down because the work worked. The sacrifice of the Savior worked. Hebrews tells us why Jesus sits. It gives us a description in Hebrews 10 verses 11 and 12. Day after day, every priest stands And performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. The priests work on our behalf to connect us to God, the people of Bible times to connect them to God, but it doesn't take away sin. The writer of Hebrew points out one sacrifice of Jesus 
who stood on our behalf, takes away our sins, and now he sits down at the right hand of God, the power of God, because our debt is paid, because it is finished. This prophecy of Micah's that we've been looking at the last few weeks as we celebrate Christmas, it speaks of Jesus coming the first time that he would be born in Bethlehem. It also speaks of his second coming that we also await during Advent. Advent means arrival. We're awaiting and anticipating the arrival of Christ. And just as the Israelites were awaiting their Messiah, it's reminding us, so we too are awaiting the return and the presence of Jesus in our lives. All 300 prophecies of his first coming have been fulfilled. Now we await on the prophecies of his second coming. Let me read verses four and five again. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live security securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. His greatness will be seen to the ends of the earth for all eternity. But we can experience his presence right now. December 17th, 2023, San Antonio, Texas, and your life and your situation specifically, he knows exactly what we're going through and his presence and his peace, though it stretches the world and all of time meets you right where you're at in all that we are facing. We can experience his peace now. One day in his second coming, We will experience his greatness on display. Not as a baby in Bethlehem, but as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. 700 years after Micah's prophecy, the angel comes to Mary. And part of what the angel says, Luke 1, 31 through 33. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's and descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. His rule and his reign, the shepherd comes to reign in our lives for all eternity. Now he talks about this peace that he's the infinite peace. And we may have some understanding of that theologically, but that's hard to grasp sometimes, whether we're talking personally, socially, or even just looking around the world to think that God's peace is here can sometimes be hard to wrap our minds around just like it would have been for the Israelites in Micah's time. There's people who are suffering all around us. Yet the Prince of Peace is here amongst us. 
We live in a broken world that's full of evil people who do broken and evil things. Even within the church, there are many of us who have yet to experience the true mercy and grace, peace and love that God longs for us to have within our lives. Can you imagine the tension and the rumblings when Micah writes his prophecy of this one day coming Messiah? Many people over generations to come, they give up. I mean, they can only wait so long. And when they do, they're the ones who miss the arrival of Jesus. We talked last week about when the wise men come, how so many miss the very presence of Jesus. And it's in that advent, that waiting, because we don't like waiting, that we can miss the presence of what God is wanting to do in our lives right now. The difference between the people in the Old Testament and us is we have the Holy Spirit, the presence of God that he has sent to live within us. We can be full of hope even in the midst of the wait because we know that Christ has come once and he will come again. That we are made whole through the sacrifice of Christ. And one day all that is wrong will be made right. All that is broken will be restored. Towards the very end of the Bible, John writes in Revelation as he has this vision of God and the things to come and how God will make things right. Revelation 5.1 says this, then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll with the writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And then verse six, I saw a lamb. This is Jesus looking as if he had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. It goes on the very end of the Bible, Revelation 22, 12 and 13. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. From Micah to John, they speak of the advent that is coming, that one day a Messiah would come who would stand and would shepherd within our lives. We get to the end of the Bible and we see Jesus himself declare it, that he stands on our behalf. He sits at the right hand of God. And one day he will come again. Micah says that he is from days of old. Jesus here says, I am the beginning and the end. I am all of time. When Jesus came the first time, he was veiled. He was hidden as a baby. Not many saw who he was. His humanity was seen, but his divinity was, was hidden. Charles Wesley writes in his Christmas song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, Hail the incarnate deity. 
He was hidden from us. Even when the, re- even when the resurrection comes and Jesus walks amongst people, only a few hundred people saw him. When we get to Revelations, it's very mysterious and symbolic. But when we get to Revelation, we see that he will be unveiled. And we don't want to miss his presence. In the first coming, his divinity is veiled. His humanity is revealed. Many missed him. In his second coming, his divinity will be unveiled. We don't want to miss him. Not for who he is today in our lives or who he will be one day when he returns. John's description is super symbolic as he writes in Revelation with this vision, but he describes Jesus who is on the throne. As we approach Christmas, we look to the manger and we also look ahead to the throne. We remember the lowly stable that was the first Christmas And we also look forward to the splendor of heaven when one day Jesus will return. We remember the helpless cry of an infant and his humanity of his first coming. We also look forward to his second coming when we will hear the blast of trumpets and the roars of thunder as he splits the sky and calls his children. In his first coming, he was greeted by bewildered eyes of the characters of the nativity scene in his second coming, every eye will see, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that show. I don't even know if it's still on. It was on for several years, but Undercover Boss, you know, we're a CEO of a large company. Uh, gets some sort of bad mustache and fake hair and uh, goes to work within his company company as some sort of entry-level employee or manager. The staff has no idea who he is or she is as they work amongst the employees. Some of the employees are impressive as they work hard. Other employees, not so much as they badmouth the company and reveal their character. Goes throughout the hour show in different roles and varying relationships. And at the end of the show, he sits down with the employees, no longer disguised, but reveals who he or she is. Some are ashamed. Some are humbled. Many receive their reward for the way they are as employees. There's an unveiling that's coming. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around eternity and the return of Jesus, just like it was hard for the Israelites of old to wrap their minds around one day a Messiah will come. But the reality is the Messiah has come. And the Messiah will come again. And we will see that God has been Emmanuel, God with us.
So in the meantime, we wait with anticipation. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that you sent your only begotten son that whosoever believes in you should not perish. God, we thank you that you sent Jesus to stand on our behalf in this paradox of being both a ruler and a shepherd, one who leads us and one who loves us graciously and mercifully. God, we are humbled and grateful for the price has been paid, the work has been finished that we might live in peace and that we might look forward to your return. God, let us be people of anticipation, anticipating the one day when you will return, but also anticipating the small works of God in our everyday lives, in our ordinary moments, in our interactions with friends and family and neighbors. As we sit and we listen for your voice, God, we anticipate your presence. And we say, come, Lord Jesus. Lord, search our hearts and know us. Know where we struggle with our faith. Thank you for sending Jesus to take our place, to die on the cross, that we might be yours. Lord, we surrender all that we are. Help us to trust in you and walk with you and look forward expectantly. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.